Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Happy Cyber Monday, Wendy. <laughs> Happy Cyber Monday to you, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Yeah, I, I did have a pretty good Thanksgiving. Did you do anything paranormal on this Thanksgiving? Well, I didn't on Thanksgiving, unfortunately. Yeah. However, I did, as you know, because you were there. <laughs> yes. We did a little investigation of a reportedly haunted location that was pretty exciting. It, it was. And, you know, the thing is, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving is actually the biggest night for going out all year. Oh, yeah. People like to, they're in their hometown. They yeah. like to reunite with their friends from or, the old days. Or they like to escape their families and just, just yeah. start drinking right away. <laughs> right. So instead of having it the biggest night of going out for us, we made it the biggest day of ghost hunting. That's right. Maybe we'll have to start a tradition doing that. That could I, be fun. Yeah. The, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving ghost hunt. And so we're going to have that in a future podcast episode once we start collecting all of the evidence. Yeah, we have to review. We have so much footage, both video and audio, and all kinds of different cameras. And we played some songs to try to stir up some activity, Mm -hmm. see if that resulted in anything. But yeah, it was a fun day. It was a great way to kick off the holiday weekend, I think. Yeah, and I hadn't been on a ghost investigation in a while. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, at least not more than just like walking in the room saying, is there anybody in the room? And like putting my phone up. So to have all the cameras and everything like that, that was the first time I'd really done that since we were in the old South Pittsburgh hospital. Yeah, I think for me too. So that was fun to, to get back in on the ground floor uh, and do some investigating. Well, and to have full access to an enormous place like this, this space was huge. Yeah, it was exciting. We'll be sharing some of those details with our Patreon community this Wednesday at our Hangout. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so if you guys are interested in checking that out, make sure othersidepodcast.com slash donate where you can become a Patreon as well. And we can talk about this kind of stuff with the first access to anything cool we find. Uh, we'll always go to our Patreons. And we are going to be recording a live See you on the other side podcast this Saturday at Wizard World Madison. Woohoo. It's hard to take anyone seriously when they use the term Wizard World. <laughs> but we're going to be there. We're going to be a panel on. It's a panel on evil. Are you going to bring your uh, magic wand and your pointy hat? I will be wearing I mean, my hat. We have to dress up like wizards, right? That's I part of the requirement. Yeah. Well, the problem with me is that I, I was always just a little bit too old for Harry Potter. Yeah. You know what I mean? So by the time it got really popular, I was completely like, what the heck is this? Yeah, I think we were in college when it hit the height of popularity. So when you're in college, you're like just not really into what kids are into or whatever, or what young adults particularly. Yeah. And none of us had kids yet, so... (laughs) Didn't know about Harry Potter. So the thing is, so like by the time people are like dressing like wizards and saying that Harry Potter's the coolest, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I get that scar in his head. That's cool. And I enjoyed the movies. They were The movies were pretty fun. But So I was just always a little past the wizard world and uh, more into the sci-fi thing. But we are going to be wizard worlding it this weekend uh, with William Shatner. 
That's right. Yeah. And the Shell Nichols is going to be there. <laughs> um, Greg Brady is going to be there. Really? Yeah. I didn't see that one. That's cool. Yeah. So we can ask, ask him in person. Because um, didn't he say that he tried to like go on a date or something like that with Florence Henderson? I think he was. He, oh, man. He was implying some kind of Brady Bunch romance. What? Yeah. Talk about. Yeah. So with his TV mom. Well, the 70s, you know. <laughs> But uh, you can ask Greg Brady about that live right before you come see our presentation. Uh, at We're going to be with uh, Allison, my sister from Milwaukee Ghost. We're going to be with Scott Marcus from whatsyourghoststory.com. Uh, and we're going to be a full panel. It's going to be a Wizard World this weekend at 4.30. If you are in Madison, come see a live See You on the Other Side podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait. That'll be cool. And we're bringing the evil. <laughs> we are bringing the evil. To, we're looking forward to it. Anyway, so that's what's coming up to Patreon and then the live See You on the Other Side podcast. Uh, I'm telling you about the future because I'm seeing it in my dreams. Whoa, really? Yeah. I, I, I'm dreaming that we're going to have a very successful podcast. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Saturday. I'm also, I've also dreamed that um, we were brilliant at our hangout and charming with our Patreons. <laughs> so, All right. So that, that's, that's great. It. Well, and what we're talking about today is a little bit of, of precognition in dreams and seeing the future in your dreams. And we've had uh, you know several dream episodes. We talked about lucid dreaming. We talked about dream interpretation. Uh, and then we just had Robert Moss on last month. And he has this whole active dreaming thing where he thinks you can visit parallel universes and talk to the dead and everything in your dreams. But... Wendy, have you ever just had a straight-up dream where you can see the future? Well, not yet. I mean, it's possible that I dreamt something that is yet to occur. Okay. <laughs> but no, I have not had any uh, dreams come true in that sense, All unfortunately. Right. <laughs> have you? Yeah, well, the dream that I think of the most happened to me when I was in sixth grade. And mm. the first like precognitive dream that I can remember is actually fairly mundane. Precognitive. Okay, so precognition. So cognition is the idea of something that we know something that we experience cognition and like recognition means that you're recognizing, you know, you're cogn <laughs> you're recognizing something precognition is that you are seeing something before it happens. Ah, I see. You, you know something before it happens. Okay. And so, um, the first precognitive dream that I had was probably in sixth grade. And I remember it really well because I was in the middle of a different dream, probably a nightmare. Cause I had nightmares constantly. Aww. And, all of a sudden, things were, I mean, all of a sudden I was getting off the school bus with our guitar player, Ben. Okay. And uh, we were 12 years old because Ben and I grew up about, he, he, once he, he showed up when he was like 10 years old and we were only about 100 yards from each other growing up across this little woods in, in Big Bend, Wisconsin. And very rural. Anyway, so I was imagining in my dream that we were getting off the bus and then the kids from like the Catholic school or whatever who lived across the street from Ben started picking up snowballs and throwing them at us. Uh-oh. And we're like, uh-oh. And, you know, this is friendly or whatever. And <laughs> friendly so then, fire. And then we ran into Ben's garage and he took out a red circular plastic sled and he brought it out and we're using it as a shield against <laughs> the snowballs. Okay. So I was in the middle of one and then I show up and we're getting off the school bus and this is happening. The kids are throwing snowballs at it. We're defending ourselves with the sled. And then <laughs> I remember going I remember going back to the other dream. Oh. So this was just like a 30 second sequence of a dream. And, you know, when I woke up, I just thought like, oh, well, I must have been thinking about winter or must have saw something the day before that, you know, talked about snowballs or a snowball fight on TV or something. Because it wasn't winter yet. It was like six months earlier. It was in the summertime. Huh. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So it wasn't like you saw the snow plow and you saw the mountains of snow and you were cooking up a plan. Right. This was a completely different time of year. And I figured that, all right, well, I just must have, uh, you know, I was really good friends with Ben and he lived by me. And then an impromptu snowball fight, you know, getting off the school bus sounds like par for the course for a, you know, a 12 year old. (laughs) Right. True. So I didn't think anything of it. And then six months later, I got off on Ben's stop on the school bus and we were going to his house after school. And it was the first snowfall of the year. And then the kids who were across the streets started throwing snowballs at us. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then Ben <laughs> runs into his garage and gets out the red circular sled, which I had never seen before except in the dream. Weird. And he uses it. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I dreamed this. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I dreamt this dream. I, I guess I, uh, I'm not quite clear on the, on the grammar. Uh, <laughs> so at, at different points. You today, had a dream saying, about it. I had a dream about it. Different points to today, I'll be saying dreamt versus dreamed. There you go. Um, anyway, so I was just like, wow, I, I dreamt this. This, this happened. And I was kind of freaked out about it. And I think I told about it the next day. I'm like, hey, man, like I dreamed about that circular sled. I remember telling <laughs> somebody a story about that like in seventh grade uh, that I was like, yeah, I don't know what it means. I don't know if I had seen the circular sled uh, like walking through his garage at one point and then it kind of stuck itself in my brain. Oh, that's possible. You know, I'm not saying I saw the future, but what I'm saying is what happened in the dream is exactly what happened in real life. And it was six months later. Wow. And it's such a boring story. It is. <laughs> I mean, but it's cool, though. Did you ever keep a dream journal to be able to verify details or anything like that? Well, you know, I did keep a dream journal a little bit when I was a kid because I was trying to figure out ways to lucid dream to get out of my nightmare. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and then I started taking, uh, keeping a dream journal again and, and in addition to a regular journal about 14 years ago. So I started that. And any interesting dream I've had in the past 14 years, I've pretty much written down or ones that I remember. That's cool. Yeah, you're very good about journaling. So I didn't know if that was something that you include in your daily journals. Yes, I, if it's. I don't make a, a point of it and I've gotten really lazy about like digital stuff has made it easy to be lazy about journaling. Yeah, that's true. You know, so you rem- like remember where you are because electronically it knows where you are. But I do try to uh, to write that. Like last night I dreamt that um, I was in a movie with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> All right. Go Mike. And I, well, I thought it was interesting because I didn't have a big part in the movie or whatever, but I was sitting right next to Sylvester Stallone, like in his chair. We were all in the, we weren't in director's chairs. We were like in thrones. Okay. And he was just telling stories to everyone. And so nothing could get done in the movie because Sylvester Stallone was just talking the whole time. And I was like, wow, like no wonder movies cost so much money because got all these people here. And Sylvester Stallone is just telling story after story and they were entertaining. Uh-huh. But I was like, no wonder nothing gets done. <laughs> and then we had to stop because there was an eclipse. All right. And so then I was looking out over the sky and then that's when I woke up. I was like, well, this is a pretty awesome eclipse. And I was enjoying that it entirely got dark. And I remember this is how stupid my dreams are now. Um, I lift my phone up and I wanted to take a picture of that. You could see the stars during the day during the eclipse. And I was going to Instagram it. Well, I mean, that's not that far off. Like people were doing that when the actual eclipse occurred. I know, but the fact is I'm wasting my time Instagramming on social media in my in dreams dream. made me feel dumb. Like I'm hanging out with Sylvester Stallone and instead I'm just going to Insta this. Well, that reminds me of another topic here related to dreams that uh, Scott and I were talking about over the weekend. You know, they say that there's certain things you shouldn't talk about in social situations like yeah. politics, religion. And one of the, the things that they say to not bring up is <laughs> your dreams. <laughs> 
Because they're always way more interesting to you than they are when you're telling them to someone else. Ah, so you're telling me my Sylvester Sloan story is a bore. <laughs> no, I wasn't saying that, but... <laughs> but for people like us, sometimes I think it's more interesting because of our interest in, sure, in these dream interpretations and stuff like that. But uh, I just thought that was funny because... <laughs> Because now we're having a whole show about it. I'm sitting there like, and it's not a precognitive dream unless I eventually would become a, a right. film with Sylvester hey, Stallone. You know what? Anything's possible. Anything is possible. And that'd be totally sweet. But the only real precognitive dream I can remember that for sure happened, I thought about it, and then the exact same thing happened was that uh, incident, which was just enough to make me think that, okay, maybe we can glimpse something. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's pretty um, cool. Because otherwise, sometimes precognitive dreams, they might feel like deja vu. Yeah. Um, you know, like, oh, I, I must have dreamed this. I've been here before. I must have dreamed this. And I, I thought about this yesterday when I was working on the song. So the song for this week is in 6-8 time. And how we recorded it is we recorded all the guitar like on Tuesday at, at band practice. And uh, then we did several takes of like a guitar solo. And then I was, last night, I was editing the takes of the guitar solo. And I was going through and I was like, I've done this. Like, this is, I've seen this before. And... I've seen myself editing a song at 6-8 time, like going through and, and like doing the, the takes of the guitar solo. And the reason it felt like a deja vu is when I was looking at the 6-8 time signature. And that was the specific thing. Because I mean, I've edited guitar solos a thousand times before and the different takes of it together. But we've never done a song at 6-8 before on the podcast. Right. And so it was the idea of looking at the 6-8 time signature in my software and seeing my huh. uh, my hand on each like go over each take and taking the bits and pieces of it and putting together like that's what i'd recognized i'd recognized looking at the six eight and seeing my finger on the screen as i was putting the takes together and that was the deja vu and that was like haven't i dreamt this before huh. and i feel that all the time like i'd seen those little things not all the time but i'd say once every couple of months i'll have that experience of deja vu like i've dreamt this or i've been here before when was your last deja vu when i just had one last weekend actually okay i was talking to scott and he was telling me something and i'm like i've been in this place hearing you tell me this before but it was something very specific i don't recall what it was exactly but it just it was like the moment felt like i had experienced that's that very moment before Sure, it wasn't just telling them to like, do the dishes or something like that. You're like, I've dreamt this. Well, no, I actually told you this last night. No, it was a very specific to the place we were and the words he was saying, and it was just felt familiar. Well, the thing about deja vu is that you know they don't really know still like where deja yeah. vu came from. And so the idea is, are you really remembering something you've done before and just you know forgot about it? Are you seeing something you did have a dream? You know, you were dreaming about something normal that happens, like going to see a, uh, going to the store or like me working in audio software, which is something I do constantly. And then uh, it just clicks like, oh, I feel like I've done this before. (laughs) Well, I have done this before. Or I I dream about it because that is something that I, I work on. And sometimes when you dream about just everyday things. One scientist, Robert Efren, he proposed that deja vu is caused by dual neurological processing caused by delayed signals. And I thought this was the, probably the most logical explanation that uh, he found that the brain's sorting of incoming signals is done in the temporal lobe of the left hemisphere. However, they enter that lobe twice before they get processed. So your signal comes from the left side and the right side of the brain when it comes to the temporal lobe to our cognition part of it, where we think about it. So what happens is 
if there's a delay in the signal from the left side of the brain and on the right side of the brain, then it happens and then it happens again, uh. if that makes sense. So your temporal lobe gets the message and then it gets another message a microsecond later. Okay. A millisecond. There's no, I don't know if there's a microsecond. There probably sure there is. Um, but so that your temporal lobe then sees two events instead of uh, one event. Okay. And so it's just, a, it's just a quick delay in the processing. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like it makes sense because we have two hemispheres. You're getting two signals. And if it's not synchronized, then – and we just discussed that um, in our episode about psychic powers and mental illness – that sometimes there's a hiccup in the processing. And so we think that we predicted something when really our brain just processed it after it right. happened. And so deja vu could be the same kind of thing, that we think we dreamed it or we, we, we think it happened to us uh, previously. But what happened is it just was a delay in the processing of the signals. So I often get that feeling of, oh, I dreamed this. <laughs> Then I look in my dream journal. I'm like, I don't remember dreaming this. And with Evernote, you can look up everything in like one second. Search it, yeah. And so the only one for sure that I know is about that red sled. But you know, when I was reaching out to other people to see if they've had any precognitive dreams, my wife had one. And I think she's told me this story before, but I forgot about it. And I was, I was glad that she uh, told it to me again yesterday, is when she was 12 years old, she had a dream about her grandfather... Uh, going up to their vacation home, they had a cabin up way up north, in uh, like the super far up in Wisconsin near Siren, Wisconsin, oh. right, which is practically Canada. <laughs> and so she had a dream that her grandfather went to their vacation home up there and had a heart attack. Oh and no! Died. And two days later, oh no, her grandfather had a heart attack, and then he didn't die immediately. He was in the hospital for a week, but he died. Wow, that's. That's pretty uncanny. And the thing that really freaked her out is he didn't have any history of heart disease. So that she wouldn't have had reason to assume something like that would happen. Right. He didn't have any blood pressure <sighs> medication or anything like that, that she you know, would say that, um, you know, I've had a ton of heart disease in my family. So if somebody, if I had a dream about my mother having a heart attack, it would yeah. be like, that's out of the ordinary. It'd be like, well, your mom has had a heart attack. <laughs> so you're going to have a dream about it. But with her grandfather, and she was only 12 at the time. She had no history of it. And the other thing is he was getting ready to go on vacation. They were packed up and were getting on the plane or were about to go to the airport. And that's when he had the heart attack. Wow. So he wasn't going to the vacation home. He was just going on vacation because they never went to their vacation home or whatever together. Oh. So, he, so he wasn't associated with it. But she associated him with, you know, that he was going on vacation she sees him have a heart attack in their vacation home. And it, it's that idea of, well, she predicted he was going to have a heart attack on vacation and die. Huh. And she didn't tell anybody about it for a long time because she felt guilty. Like Aww. she didn't tell any, because she didn't tell anybody or warn anyone that she had this dream that she caused it. Kind of, you know, yeah. the kind of guilt that children have. But I was like, wow, that's a crazy one. You, you dreamed your grandfather died and he did wow. like two days later. So that's the kind of precognitive dream where something comes out of nowhere and you dream something that immediately happens afterwards that really freaks people out. And we also have a dream from our friend Lisa, ghost host Lisa. Yes. And uh, she is the guide for the Madison Ghost Tour. It's a brilliant guide. And she called in to share her own similar dream experience. And let's take a listen to that. This is your favorite ghost host with the most. 
I have a dream. I've been catching up on your podcast, and this one was probably more for the dream interpretation guy from God knows when that I listened to. Anyway, um, a dream of things that happened. I was the primary caregiver for my grandma who lived in Chicago. She died in 2011. She had a really good run the first 96 years of her life. The last two, she was sick and declining. So in January that year, she got um, really sick. So February comes along, and we come and go, and then March, and uh, she'd be in and out of the hospital. And mind you, she couldn't walk for the past few years, and I had a trip to Hawaii planned. So I'm sitting with her. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Hawaii for 10 days. I'll be back. You know, and obviously she she was just done with it all. She kind of lost her will to live. So let's say I go on like a Friday or a Saturday and everything's fine, having a good time. Then uh, I had this very vivid dream. It was so weird that I was at the airport. She was had a little pole suitcase, little bag, and she was walking to get on a plane. I'm like, wait, Grandma, do you need coffee? And she was all happy to be leaving, and I'm like, wow, that was a weird dream. I woke up, obviously, sighing very heavy because I woke up my friend I was with. And then, sure enough, at 11 o'clock that day, my sister called me and said, okay, here's the deal with Grandma. She's pretty much done. We can keep her alive, you know, giving her fluids, but, you know, how do you want to do this because I was her caregiver. I'm like, well, keep her alive till Lynn can get there Friday. And I eventually worked my way back, you know, a couple days later, too. And sure enough, that Friday, we uh, took her off all fluids, and it took her another week to die, the longest week of my life by far. So I had this dream. Grandma was getting an airplane and leaving, and I got the call that she was. Not that out of the realm of reality, but it was a bit unexpected. And the other weird thing about that, um, it was during the time with all the protests. So I'm in Chicago watching CNN say that we have all these violent protests, and I'm thinking, I was just there. It was fine. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Lisa. That's a Thanks, Lisa. That's a crazy dream. And another precognitive dream that we got from a listener comes in from another awesome Patreon member like ghost host Lisa, and that's our friend Chuck. Yay, Chuck. Now, uh, if you guys aren't familiar with Chuck, he is also an author. His pen name, which is his real name, but his, he goes by his author name, C.E. Martin. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, to Chuck's Amazon page. But he's got a brand new book, just came out last week, called Stranger Than Fiction, A Skeptic's Journey. It's available on Kindle Unlimited. You can read it or you can pick up your copy. Um, and it's for a really good deal. Just a little background on Chuck. Military veteran, retired criminal investigator, and part-time author C.E. Martin shares his own strange encounters as well as those he's heard firsthand from people he's personally known. Without having sought out the strange or supernatural, Martin has collected over two dozen strange experiences ranging from out-of-body experiences to hauntings to encounters with beings not of this world. From childhood through middle age, follow along in a strange journey from innocent to true believer to skeptic 
Then decide for yourself, was it stranger than fiction or merely wishful thinking? And I'm about halfway through the book right now, and it's really entertaining, and we think you guys are going to like it. But uh, we asked Chuck for permission to see if we could read uh, the story of his precognitive dream for this episode, and we just wanted to share that. And this is an, an excerpt from the brand new book, Stranger Than Fiction, A Skeptic's Journey. Strange Visitor At this point, I had grown quite unhappy with my day job, the horrors of the many child abuse cases I read on a daily basis weighing heavily on me. I regularly had nightmares about these cases, and not just because I had children the same age as those I read about regularly, or because some of the children I read about in Child Protective Services reports my kids actually knew. I had nightmares because child abuse reports are horrific. Eventually, as my royalties kept growing, as I sold more and more books, I started to seriously consider moving on to something better. There was just one problem. The current prosecutor was going to retire soon. The chief deputy prosecutor, a guy I considered a friend, was going to run in his place. The idea of leaving him without an investigator made me particularly uneasy. I began to have anxiety about it, even as I daydreamed about how great it would be to walk away from the criminal justice career field and give full-time writing a chance. As I wrestled with this feeling of guilt, I began to make inquiries about cashing out my retirement so I'd have something to carry me through while I worked to turn my writing into something more than a paying hobby. I redoubled my writing efforts on the weekends, concentrating not on how to quit, but how to succeed, all the while worrying about the day that was coming when I'd have to go ahead and reveal my plans. Something amazing happened, though. My anguish over trying to figure out how to tell the soon-to-be new prosecutor I was retiring evaporated one morning in a most unexpected way. It had been a weeknight like any other. I turned in after my kids were asleep and my wife was already in bed. As normal, I tried to get my mind off work by reading the latest bits of paranormal news from the internet until I finally drifted off. When morning came, I awoke surprised and confused. Often, I awake knowing I've dreamed something, but am unable to recall it. Sometimes, those memories come rushing back all at once. This was much like that. My memory was of being awoken in the middle of the night to see my mamma standing at the foot of my bed. Not as she had appeared right before she died a few years earlier, but as she had nearly 30 years prior when I was a small child. It was an odd thing to dream. My mamma and I had not been particularly close when I was growing up, and the last few years of her life, I hadn't seen her much at all. But there she was, in my room, calmly talking to me. That, too, was odd. I never dream about my house. Normally, my dreams involve living in other homes of varying design. Many of the other houses repeat in my dreams, but this was the first time I dreamed about the home I actually live in. As I remember it, Mama sat down on the end of the bed, smiling pleasantly. I asked her why she was there, and she just smiled and said she wanted me to know they'd already decided to let me go. I knew instantly what she meant. She was referring to the prosecutor's office where I worked and the upcoming election. Many times when a local politician takes office, they will come in and change out the staff. It was a tried and true tradition in my county. I wasn't alarmed by this at all. I was relieved. A feeling of great relief came over me and I laid back down and went back to sleep. Come morning, as I sat in bed remembering my dream, I felt oddly peaceful. I didn't have to worry about what to tell the new prosecutor. He was already planning on replacing me. I wasn't mad or nervous, just relieved. A few weeks passed and I continued to secretly make my plans to leave. 
Then, one day in June, I was called back to the current prosecutor's office, where the chief deputy running to be his replacement was waiting. Despite the fact that I had been careful up to this point, not wanting to tip my hand about retiring before the election, they had found out. Six weeks later, I said my goodbye to the office and set out on a new path, one that would lead me to a haunted house. Awesome story, Chuck. Thank you very much. And we're looking forward to seeing you at the Hangout this Wednesday. Yeah, thanks so much, Chuck. And remember, there will be a link in the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 224. And you can check that book out yourself. It's crazy that we dream about these things and they happen. And it's not just regular people, obviously, that it happened to. It's happened to, you know, pretty famous people like Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) He himself had a dream that seemed to have foretold his assassination. Oh, boy. What do you do when you have one of those? Well, I mean, you tell your friend and bodyguard, Colonel Ward, Colonel Ward Hill Lehman. And he, he wrote a memoir and the colonel was there when Abraham Lincoln shared his disturbing dream a few days before his assassination. And Lincoln started talking about the dreams um, that he had read about in the Bible. And he says that, you know, if we believe in the Bible, because he's a religious guy, this is 1860, everybody's religious. uh, We must accept the fact that in the old days, God and his angels came to men in their sleep and made themselves known in dreams. So then Mary Todd then says like, well, do you believe in that? And he's like, well, I don't, I don't usually believe in, you know, what happens in my <laughs> dreams is going to happen in real life. And and Mary Todd was somebody who was, you know, she was into psychic powers. Oh, Mary yeah. Todd was into seances. Uh, Mary Todd was always trying to talk to the dead. But he said that this dream happened to him and he couldn't stop thinking about it. In his dream, he found himself in the White House. He could sense death-like stillness. He heard weeping, but he couldn't find the, the source of it. He walks downstairs and searches each room, attempting to find the source of of the morning. And so the rooms are are brightly lit, and he keeps walking around, but he can't find anybody in any of the rooms, even though there's lights on in each of them. Then he enters the east room of the White House, and he sees soldiers standing guard and people weeping over a corpse. And he asks the soldiers, who is dead in the White House? And the soldier replies, the president. He was killed by an assassin. Oh, gosh. Right. That's pretty specific. And then he says, uh, you know, the, the, the crowd in the dream who was grieving, there was like a loud cry or something, and that woke him up. And he said that he did not sleep again, again <laughs> that night. Well, he did. I mean, he did sleep a couple more days. Um, no, but that sounds so disturbing. That would be a tough one to <laughs> shake. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the guy that wrote it, though, the colonel, Colonel War Lehman, he said that he talked to Lincoln about it again a, a couple of days later. And Lincoln's like, oh, I, I don't think it was me who was lying dead in the dream. But what happens is, is you know, he gets assassinated, just, you know, just a few days after that. So the thing is, he has this dream about assassination and then he gets assassinated. And that's <clears throat> pretty weird. I mean, but the, he did was the president during the Civil War. And this was after the Civil War. And a lot of people were mad at him. True. So, can't say that it was completely out of the ordinary yeah and it would be out of president's mind perhaps you of know, course if not trying to kill him <laughs> right if not in the forefront it's probably always lingering somewhere so one of america's most famous authors who was also alive during the time of lincoln he claims that he had a, a precognitive dream as well Ooh. so mark twain everybody loves mark twain huckleberry finn tom sawyer um you know, clever, the guy that said the, the rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> what I think is interesting about Mark, Mark Twain is he talks about like Halley's Comet. 
Because uh-huh. Haley's Comet like appeared the year he was born, and it also appeared the year he died. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> unless you're dead. Well, yeah. Idea. It's a nice little uh, bookend. Yeah, a little bookend to his life. <laughs> so they were both working on a steamboat sailing on the Mississippi between New Orleans and St. Louis. Him and his younger brother, Henry. On a dark night in the late 1880s, he's at his sister's home in St. Louis, and he awakes in terror from what he says is a very real nightmare. He dreamt that his brother had died and that his corpse was lying in an open metal coffin, and that on his chest was an elaborate bouquet of white flowers marked by a single red rose in the center. Hmm. Like Lincoln, he said he couldn't fall back asleep. He just laid awake and thought about it. So he gets off that steamboat that he's working with his brother and he goes to another riverboat and then shortly afterwards a couple weeks as his brother's steamboat is going into memphis harbor four boilers exploded and henry was killed so uh, then mark twain goes to the funeral and he sees all the victims in their coffins and one wasn't wood it was metal which was paid for by several local ladies who had a liking for henry (laughs) okay obviously he's a popular guy and so he was in the metal coffin, and everybody else was in the wood coffin. And so that kind of blew Mark Twain away there, that he's like, oh, man, the first aspect comes true. His brother gets killed in the steamboat. The second aspect comes true, the metal coffin. <sighs> and then as he's watching, uh, his, looking at his brother's corpse, a woman walks up. She places the spray of white flowers with a single red rose that it set her on his chest. So all, all the parts of his dream, uh, he claimed, had come true. Wow. That. From the metal coffin to the bouquet of flowers to his brother passing away. So all the parts of his nightmare had come true. That's freaky. I mean, I mean yeah. He was totally freaked out. About it. And the fact that the bouquet like happened before his eyes. Right. That's very detailed. Yeah. So the thing is, precognitive dreams. Like, can we see the future in our dreams? Well, there's a couple parts to it that you have to think about. And one is, if we can see the future, is the future set? When we talked with Robert Moss, he was talking about how these could all be possible futures. But if, if we see the future and it comes true, <laughs> does that mean that the future is set? So how we experience reality, we think about it. When do you go through your day and you think you make decisions, right? Sure, yeah. Right, you're like, I'm going to decide to eat chicken today. And then you go <laughs> to KFC and give you some extra tasty crispy kernel. <laughs> and then you eat some chicken or you know, whatever decision you decide to make, what kind of, which movie that you want to see or friends you decide. I mean, it's not even, it's not even the big decisions we're talking about. We're talking about the little decisions in your life. You think that we're, we're all in control of them. So if the future is set, then are we in control of it? And how can the future be set? Yeah. All right. Well, there's one theory that comes from, from real physics, not just like the kind of physics that we talk about on this show where things are oogity boogity. <laughs> But it's the idea of a block universe. Okay. And so the block universe comes through. Everything has already happened. Everything has happened at once. And uh, we think of the universe like a huge block. And we are like a a little, like a worm inside that block. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so our existence from beginning to end has happened, but we are going through it inside the block. Okay. Oh. So that's the idea that everything has already happened and 
we're experiencing it. Hmm, okay. And so people have suggested that, and that's, that's one of the ways that, that there is already a future. There is already a past. I mean, obviously there's already a past, but our present is just our consciousness's best way of explaining how we're going through things. Okay. And that's one idea, that, that idea of the, the block universe. And Newton talked about in the second law of thermodynamics, it's what says that there can never be time travel because time only flows in one direction. So as we are flowing through the block or whatever, yeah. the second law of thermodynamics says that entropy, chaos, only goes in one direction. So you only get more and more entropy. You can never get less. That means you can only go towards chaos and you can never go back from it is the second law of thermodynamics. So time's arrow means we can only go forward because we can never have less entropy and entropy is always getting they're always getting more of it. That's interesting. Well, think about when you put two pairs of headphones in a bag <laughs> okay. and, you just, and you leave the bag, you don't even move it. But the headphones find some way to get tangled up in each other more and more. So the headphones get completely tangled up. Yes. And they never get untangled in their own. They only get more tangled in their own. So there's only more chaos that happens as time goes on. Never less chaos. Okay. Now, the thing is, is that now people have this idea of retrocausality. It's not that you can go backwards in time, but something that happens in the future can decide what's happening in the present. Hmm. And so this idea of retrocausality comes from the whole quantum entanglement kind of deal. And we talked okay. about everybody, everybody talks about quantum physics because quantum <laughs> physics seems to justify every kind of paranormal thing out there. <laughs> It does. It's the catch-all. Right. The, the party pooper it, catch-all. And the thing, the thing about quantum physics, so this original idea that when you have things at a subatomic level, photons and electrons, they always act as a system. So when you do something to one, it happens to all of them, even if they're very far apart. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, even if they were communicating with each other, it seems to move faster than the speed of light. And nothing can move faster than the speed of light. So that's why Einstein always thought that quantum physics, whatever, needed a new theory. It was incomplete because when you mess with this photon and it changes this electron at faster than the speed of light, that's impossible. Right. Okay. So instead of that, let's use this idea of retrocausality instead. That something that happens in the future decides what happens in the present. So these things are just reacting so when you change that electron or whatever, and all of a sudden the photon changes too, it's because what happens in the future decides. And so that's the idea of retrocausality. Um, and people have actually, I don't say kind of proven it, but there are some experiments that have shown that something that appears to have happened in the future can reflect on something that happens now. But this is all on a very... So, it's on a subatomic level. Mm -hmm. It's like there's no physical properties. It's like the whole idea of schrodinger's cat or whatever that the cat can be alive and dead at the same time and it's only when we go in to look at the cat do we know if it's actually alive or it's actually dead so there's a, a thought that only when something is actually observed does then it actually make a decision on, on what kind of state it's going to be so people have shown that they're trying to use retrocausality as a way to explain quantum physics that doesn't violate the going faster than the speed of light 
I see. Because there was a Chinese experiment just a couple of years ago that showed when, like, when quantum activity happens, what Einstein called the spooky action at a distance. And, you know, people always talk about that in paranormal stuff, too. Like, Einstein believed in this stuff. Like, no, Einstein <laughs> thought that the theory was incomplete. He just didn't think there was anything that was random. And so he thought the theory was incomplete. And so what he's saying, we need to figure out why these entangled particles interact with each other instantaneously, even if faster than the speed of light. And so these Chinese physicists found that the lowest speed that the quantum particles were reacting with each other was four times the speed of light. Wow. So it can go much faster if necessary. But right now, the lowest speed that they found in their research was it was going four times the speed of light, which is spooky action at a distance is it's impossible yeah so i mean that's why they're trying to use retro causality is this idea that the future is set it's already happened and it's having an effect on the past well now we get to that idea where if the future is set and we live in this block universe do we have free will hmm that's idea so i mean thing wow. is, i mean what Deep stuff well we make decisions based on you know we judge people based on whether they have free will or not Right. You know, we put people in prison. In religion, the whole concept of hell is based on whether people have free will or not. If you don't have free will, then is it fair that you have to go to hell for making bad decisions? You know, and so and that's a big thing in Christianity, this idea of free will, because it's going to determine whether or not we're worthy of salvation and damning people to eternal torment if they have no choice in the matter. Yeah. And some of the interesting experimentation about free will is that I'd never heard about this particular experiment before, but there's a guy named Benjamin LeBay, mm. um, and he does an experiment in, in the 1980s. And this is really influential in psychology, which I'm just surprised we never talked about it in class. But he was trying to determine whether or not people had free will. So what he did was he attached electrodes to their head to monitor their brain activity. And then they're sitting in front of a timer. And they're asked to perform simple tasks like pressing a button or flexing a wrist. And they were going to note the moment that they were consciously aware of their decision to move. Okay. I'm going to move my arm. And then as you raise your arm, whatever. And consistently, there was unconscious brain activity before people would notify that they were going to move. So it's like we subconsciously thought about the movement before we actually moved. That makes sense, though. I mean, there's probably a little delay between... The speech of saying it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about too. You know? But it's this idea that the brain makes the decision to move. And then in our consciousness, we then interpret it as our conscious brain making the decision. Hmm. So, so it's this whole idea that there's so much going on subconsciously. Yeah. The brain's reacting to, it knows that it's supposed to be moving. And then it unconsciously decides how we're going to move, where we're going to move. And then in our conscious brain, that's where like, well, yeah, I made the decision that I was going to move my right hand when already that decision was made inside our subconscious levels. Hmm. So the idea of free will is we are hardwired to do certain things. And so I, I see. The difference is the source of the brainwave is the, in the subconscious area, not in the conscious area. Right. Huh. So the source of all of our activity, the source of all of our thoughts, the so source of everything comes from the subconscious area, the unconscious, and then... It's only after we do them that we have made a decision in our heads that we were the ones who, oh, we, man. who made that decision. So that takes away the idea of free will because we're hardwired to do certain things. And the brain is so complex that there's a million different things we can do. It's not like a computer. It's not just a million lines of code in a program. It's billions. 
of lines of code in our head that we're born with. And so if you're born with certain genetics, if you're born with certain brain functions or mental illness, that's going to affect you too. So the thing is, if we have that where we're completely determined by our chemicals and our subconscious brain, then is any decision we make ever really ours? Hmm. Does it really matter? I mean, <laughs> right. So th- that's the thing. And that fits in perfectly with this idea that everything has already happened. Yeah. Because we're just running on a program. <laughs> and our conscious brain is convincing us that we're making a decision. Kind of like, let's say I bought a really expensive car. Okay. And I just had this urge. You know, <laughs> I, I had the evolutionary urge that I want to impress girls with an expensive car. And okay. I had the uh, social proof urge that I wanted to show people I was rich by buying an expensive car. All right. And then later on, I tell myself, well, I made that decision after thinking very carefully about the mileage. And I was thinking about the environment. Because let's say I bought a Tesla. I bought a Tesla, a very expensive car. And I, I, wanted to save, I wanted to save the environment kind of thing. And so I retroactively convinced myself that I made this decision to buy a very expensive car, even though it was my chemical urges that made that decision for me. And so... I think that's what this whole theory is, that our subconscious makes the decision and then we just convince ourselves it was ours. And our subconscious is controlled by any huge variability of things. Yeah. I mean, that there's so many variables involved in our brain that I don't know how you would ever predict behavior no. uh, like that. You would have to have a, a system that was able to take in <laughs> the billions of variables in each person's head. Right. But with genetic research... And the more we understand about how each part of the brain works, you know, that's also dangerous, though, because if you think that people are born, I mean, that's a very old school way of thinking about the world. Because in the Bible, they say things like the sins of the father are visited upon, you know, the son. And like after World War II, any relative of Adolf Hitler, they were told, you know, like they, they voluntarily said, we will have no children. Like they said, we, that, like they ended the line. Hmm. And that was the idea that we're ending the genetic line. And so that idea that people can't escape where they're born from, I mean, that's almost medieval when you think of it. Because you're like, well, the, the kings and queens, they're decided by God to be the ones in charge. Yeah. And so when we look at the world through that perspective, sometimes it gets, uh, it gets a little depressing. Like when I think about a world without free will, I get depressed. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's no fun. And the idea that, oh, no, free will might be supported by physics. I mean, the lack of free will might be supported by physics. That just makes me feel bad. (laughs) But this idea that we dream about something and then it happens because it's already set. You know, these premonitions. There's a couple new books about it, actually, uh, fairly in in the past couple years. There's one called Time Loops. Uh, that just came out. If you guys want to look in, I was listening to a lot of podcasts with the, the guy who wrote Time Loops ah, okay. um, when I was doing research for this particular episode. And uh, he's an anthropologist who had a few precognitive dreams himself. His name is Eric Wargo. And you can find his blog at uh, thenightshirt.com. And I don't know why it's called The Nightshirt. <laughs> it's a really good blog. And he has, you know, he, he talks about some of his precognitive dreams. And his book is called Time Loops, uh, Precognition, Retrocausation, and the Unconscious. Hmm. Uh, and that just came out this month. And then there's another book called The Premonition Code. 
And they talk about how we have these psychological signals that seem to anticipate future events. Okay. You know, like free will, the second law, third, the next, the whole kinds of stuff. So you can find that under the premonition code. And that's another one done by a couple of psychologists. And Dean Radin and Lloyd Auerbach uh, write the preface and the foreword. Oh. So both people we've had on the show. And in their book, too, they say that you know, there's practical tools and techniques that you can use to help gain insight in your own future to become a, a positive precog. Oh, man. That's cool. And precog, that's the nickname they had for the people who were psychic in the movie Minority Report. Got it. Okay. So if you guys remember the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report, Steven Spielberg directed it. Uh, it's based on a Philip K. Dick story. This idea they had three precognitives who could see the future. And Tom Cruise was a, a pre-crime detective. So they could see the crimes before they happened. And Tom Cruise would arrest the people before they committed the crime. Wow. And that was the idea behind that, that they were, they were predicting that. But the stuff we're talking about today is that... Uh, there's no way to, like Tom Cruise would never be able to stop the people from committing the crime. Right, yeah. <laughs> he would just be able to catch him. Uh, like he'd know who it was, but you you know, wouldn't be able to stop him. Hmm. And so precognitive dreams, I think it's a cool thing to write down your dreams and then see if anything happens afterwards. If you, I'd be interested to see any of our listeners, if you guys have had cool precognitive dreams and want to tell us about them, um, we'd love yeah. to share them and maybe... You know, and talk about them in a future episode and stuff. So feel free to tweet us at Other Side Talk or send us an email at info at OtherSidePodcast.com if you have a precognitive dream story that you'd like to share and we can, we can talk about it in a future episode. Because there's a guy from the 1920s, his name was J.W. Dunn, and he wrote a book called An Experiment in Time. And he thought that he was having precognitive dreams. He thought that he was seeing the future while he was sleeping. Mm. And so he decided to, to do that whole thing, keep a dream journal like we were talking about before and seeing if any of his dreams came true. And so J.W. Dunn writes this in the UK in 1927. And he starts saying all these dreams that, that he's had, that he wrote down when they happened and later something happened that came true. He records a dream in 1898 where he dreams his watch stops at an exact time. Like, I don't know. I guess the stoners would say it stopped right at 420. <laughs> and, then, and then he wakes up and he looks at his watch and it had stopped at 420. Whoa. So he dreamt that before it happened. He dreamt about a volcanic eruption in Martinique, a factory fire in Paris, and the derailing of an express train in Scotland. And he wrote those down in his journal. And eventually they happen. Hmm. And so that's why he wrote a book about it and an experiment with time. And in the 1920s, general relativity had just been published. Quantum mechanics was just kind of emerging. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing is we think about the 1920s, like they didn't have smartphones or anything <laughs> like that. You know, you think about, you know, you're like, like oh, those guys, you know, um, they don't seem very modern. No. Right. Um, but you know, they had already talked about quantum mechanics. You know, Einstein had already talked about space time and things like that. All these things we think about science fiction, they were already developing in the 1920s. And like J.W. Dunn was inspired by some of those uh, physics and things when he was writing his book. And he, he developed a whole idea called serialism. Serialism is a proposition that there's more than one dimension of time. There's the dimension that we experience consciously, that we're talking right now. And so I'm like, oh, what did you do today? Well, I talked to Wendy for an hour about, about seeing the future in our dreams. What did you do today? Uh, I had turkey. <laughs> um, okay. And then, but there's another, there's a higher dimension of time. And that's where 
we can find when we have the consciousness of our dreams. And so we're experiencing a different dimension of time in our dreams uh, that overlays the first one. And so that's, that's his idea. And then you can go even farther up, that you can go up and up and up until there's a, a supreme observer that sees all of time. Oh, boy. And so his theory of serialism is that when we die, our physical cells in the first dimension of time, they die. But our higher selves go visit the other dimensions. Now, that's not really supported by any kind of physics or anything like that. That kind of sounds like uh, Reverend Polk and his, you know, <laughs> his living in the fifth. And he talked about up to the 12th dimension or the 14th dimension and things like that. But the funny thing is this idea of multiple dimensions of time to experience comes from J.W. Dunn's book in the 1920s, An Experiment with Time. And it was all about the dream journal he kept and the precognitive dreams that he Mm. experienced. And then he was trying to figure out a way to reconcile that with reality. And then he came up with that by throwing some pseudoscience on it (laughs) in there. But I appreciate the fact that he tried it at all. Yeah. You know, and and not just saying like, well, God did it. That's it. Right, right. I mean, but trying to apply science to this idea, even if it was pretty primitive. So that's just a little bit on the the history and and some famous precognitive dreams. So let's say we figured out this precognition thing. Let's say we figured out retrocausality. Let's say we could figure out what the future is. Would would you want to know what's in your future, your personal future? Well, that would depend on, can I change it? Or is it, it's predetermined. I'm assuming I can't change it, right? Right. I think instead of a possible future, this would be, this will come to pass no matter what. Would you like to know it? Boy, no, I don't think I would want to know, to be honest. If I can't change it or do anything about it, then I feel like it would add a lot of extra stress. (laughs) Yeah, just let it happen, right? Yeah, I think so. I think not knowing the future, but wanting to kind of know it, it's part of the human condition. It's It's what we're evolved to do. You know, we talk about uh, how we are perceiving time. I mean, this is the way our bodies, this is the way our brains evolved. And they're evolved to make us think we have free will. So I think we go against that kind of natural thing. It, it, it hurts. And I'm not the only person to think that. Wendy, you're not the only person to think that. Okay. Most people out there would rather not know their future. Oh. There was a, yeah. There was a study <laughs> done last year. More than 2,000 people from Germany and Spain were asked in face-to-face interviews whether they would want to know about future events in their lives. Nearly all, 85 to 90%, would not want to know about upcoming negative events. What about positive ones? Up to 70% preferred to remain ignorant of positive ones. And so the person that uh, was the lead author was uh, Gerd Gernzer. Maybe I should say like Arnold. (laughs) Gesundheit. Gerd Gerns, the director of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, Berlin. He said, if time travel could reveal, oh no, I'm just going to read this guy like Arnold too. If time travel could reveal important personal information, such as to whom one will be married in 10 years, many would rather travel backwards to avoid learning bad news. So, that's the idea. People don't want spoilers about their lives. Ah, okay. He continues. The motivation for not wanting to know about positive events appears to be maintaining surprise and suspense, very much as one does not want to know in advance how a movie ends or the murderer in an Agatha Christie story. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I caught a little bit of New York in that one. But. I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on No, it but the art. point being, yeah, people don't want spoilers for their life. Right. Surprise is built into the human condition. Like, we want to feel that we can make something out of our lives. Because in the end, whether our chemical impulses are doing it or not, like, we still have to get up and go to work. We still, you know, we still have to think of podcast ideas. We still have to write songs. Like, it's, it's not done for us, even if we know it's going to happen in the future. Right. So does it does it help? I mean, okay, here's the questions now. Okay. Would you want to know today when your partner will die? Oh, no. No, 89, 89.5% of people also said no to that. Do you ever read The Time Traveler's Wife? No. Okay, that kind of has these questions in it too, and predetermined destiny and things like that. It's a pretty good um, book. They're going to make a TV show out of it. Stephen Moffat from Doctor Who is going to do it. So he's got, obviously he has some experience with time travel. <laughs> but would you want to know today from what cause your partner will die? No. So if you knew how they would die, like if, I mean, I guess if you could try to prevent it or make it better, I, I, I don't know. 90, no, We're running on the assumption that you can't change it. That you can't change it. You can't do anything po- to change the outcome. Right. 90.4% of people said no. Huh. Okay. Would you want to know today whether your marriage will end in divorce or not? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Probably not. 86.5% said no. Uh, would you want to know if there's life after death? Yeah. You know, I would say, I would say yes, but uh, <laughs> 56.9% of people oh. said no. They don't want to know about life after death. And there's an interesting, did you ever read, uh, there's that human, is, is it called humans or called sapiens or... Sapiens, yes, I listened to the audiobook of that. Okay, and I don't remember that author's name, but I mean, he's pretty brilliant. It's a great book. But one thing he talks about is that if we knew we could live forever as long as we didn't like die in a car crash or something yeah. like that. He claims that people, you know, probably wouldn't leave the house. Right. You know, we would be too yeah. scared to do anything. Be risk averse because you know, like <laughs> Right. You could live a long time, but if you're taking chances, then that's the only way thing that's gonna end it really. Yeah, you could totally screw up and then everybody else gets to live forever and you get the fear of missing out forever. <laughs> right. Um, I think that if we knew if there was life after death, there might be an opposite effect. Mm. You know, if you knew that you you just go on, would more people commit suicide? Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, just pull the plug. It's time to go. Would more people do dangerous things? Because we don't have that natural fear of doing things that are reverse. I think people might do more dangerous things. People might commit suicide more if we knew there was life after death. I, I think having that not knowing also gives life kind of a that like flavor of you know like this is what we got if we're just totally like well i just can't wait till the next life when i come back as a bear or something because bears get to sleep all winter not that i'm tired but like that that, (laughs) but that whole idea um so i can see why some people would say no but i mean obviously i do like exploring the idea of where there's life after death but i think that's part of what gives humanity its edge Next question, Wendy, would you want to know the gender of your child before birth? Um, yeah, I think maybe because I think it's fun to leave a little bit of surprise factor for a joyous occasion like that. But I understand when people want to know ahead so they can plan better for the arrival of the kid. Yeah, just get the like no closure, get to get the nursery ready kind of thing, like yeah, all that kind of stuff. Choose a name and that type of thing. Yeah. So I mean I did, so would you want to know the gender of your child before birth? I wanted to know. I didn't tell anybody about it because I wanted to make that a surprise. 
Yeah. But I wanted to know <laughs> to make sure everything was cool. So, but 40% of people said no as far as this survey. Okay. So, uh, Frank Farley, the professor at Temple University and former president of the American Psychological Association, the APA, uh, <laughs> just says, hey, people simply don't want to know. While you might think you'd want to look into the future to deal with it, I think the stress gets too high. And he wanted to do a similar study in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't want to know the future. I like the idea. It's, you know, to me, I want everything to be the end of Terminator 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like at the end of Terminator 2, it's like, you know, you look at the thing, it says no fate. And that's the whole idea. Like we can choose what happens to us. And, right. you know, I know that there's some people who can be, you know, very comfortable with predestination. I mean, Calvinism, there's an entire part of Christianity that was based on the idea of predestination. And theologians have long debated whether um, an omniscient God can exist in a universe with free will. Because if God knows what you're going to do, then why does he let you make bad choices? Hmm. Yeah, that's God's problem. He'll deal with it. <laughs> he handles the big stuff. We handle the little stuff. So the idea behind this song for this week is that idea of, well, we might want to really, you know, we might do our best to try to find out what the future will bring. But in the end, you might not like what you see. Mm. So the track this week that I had the deja vu when I was working on. Maybe someone else will have deja vu of them listening to the song. They will. (laughs) All right. So now, like J.W. Dunn's book, it's our own experiment in time because it's the first track we recorded in 6-8 time. And here is Sunspot with Remember the Future.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Wendy, I can see the future. What? It's Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central Time, and we're having some drinks and laughing (laughs) and enjoying ourselves with the See You on the Other Side Patreons. Oh, well, that's a great future. I'm glad that it's uh, something so much fun. Yes. I'm looking at my crystal ball. I just see great times if you go to (laughs) othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Cool. Yes. And it's not too late to actually join and sign up and be part of that hangout that Mike predicted will occur on Wednesday. You can do that by visiting othersidepodcast.com slash donate and just sign up for one of the memberships uh, at the level where you can join the Hangouts. That's right. And don't even worry about free will. It's already predetermined that you are going to join the Patreon community. (laughs) Nice. And we want to make sure we thank Dr. Ned. He's at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out every single episode. Thanks, Ned. Dr. Ned, thank you so much for your support and to all of our Patreons. Thank you so much. Um, You are the people of our dreams. And we want to thank you for all the fun you give us every single week. Yes, thank you very much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Babillions. Babillions.